0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. It's Monday, July 3rd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As you know and no doubt have been seeing and hearing, the scenes of shocking violence from overseas are everywhere. Here, CBS This Morning This Morning at this report. In France, more violence erupted over the weekend amid nationwide protests over the police shooting of a 17-year-old last week. So far, more than 3,000 people have been arrested, around 1,000 buildings damaged, and 700 police officers injured. But those actually aren't the scenes of shocking violence that I'm speaking of. The violence in France has seen stores looted, many, many arrests, scary tales of families of local officials being chased from their homes, but actually no deaths other than the initial tragic shooting of the 17-year-old French youth, Nael. But in India, according to authorities, nearly 100 people have been killed, over 300 injured, and more than 40,000 displaced in the state of Manipur since May 3rd. This is the result of ethnic clashes between the mainly Hindu, Metai community, and the Kukis who are mostly Christian. Here's the latest headline today from Times of India, three shot, one beheaded in Manipur night raid. The killings go on day after day after day. This brings to my mind the juxtaposition of the Titan submersible as a news item and the news about 600 migrants who drowned near the coast of Greece after their overloaded fishing vessel capsized. As I discussed at the time, news isn't simply an accounting of humanity. It relies on elements like the unusual, the relatable, and is driven by the interests of the news consumer. And we at least heard of the Greek tragedy, the fishing vessel that was on the cover of the New York Times, that was mentioned in all the network newscasts. We knew enough to draw on it as a counterpoint, I think uh, mostly beside the point counterpoint, to the international interest in the titan. But with Manipur, we can't even shame ourselves with our ignorance of the ethnic clashes there because we have almost complete ignorance of Manipur. There was one story last month in the New York Times, one story a month before that. None of them made it higher up than page A7. No network news coverage to speak of. Why? is remote. The ethnicities involved are obscure. The government of India itself, which controls information, wants it to go away... There's nothing we could do about it. With the Titanic, I don't know if there was much we, you and I, or people who care could do about it, but. There is at least a little bit of the illusion of control. I mean, this was a situation where Western businessmen made choices. These choices were profiled and somewhat called out on the news beforehand. They were warned by other experts about their safety choices. It was very much in the control of the power structures that we generally have access to. In Greece, less so, but Greece is a member of the EU. We, meaning just broadly speaking, the West, can pressure Greece to change their rescue policies. India, the state of Manipur, which I'm not going to lie, I don't think I've ever heard of before. Certainly never heard of the Kukis and the Metis, unfamiliar with them. Everything about it seems so obscure, so out of our control. We mentally assign it to a category that we maybe have a shot at understanding, a category of ethnic clashes in a far-flung land. It's sad, but opaque. News, again, is not the accounting of human rights. Comparative morality is not, I don't think, a worthwhile way to analyze what does or should get coverage. No matter how righteous it may seem to shame interested consumers for paying attention to this rather than that, there almost always is out there a the other, and that the other we're not paying attention to can shame us all. Obviously, we should get more coverage of what's going on in Manipur, but it doesn't mean we will be able to do anything about it. Well, we won't be able to do anything but be interested and probably saddened or angered. And my bottom line is to be aware of the tendency to turn that anger into righteousness, righteousness at the attention being paid to some similar event. I say being aware and informed and doing what little you can with that information is all we can reasonably hope for. On the show today, it's the 4th of July weekend, or whatever you call it, three days that subsumes a fourth, the fourth being the third. It's kind of complicated, but you know, it is time for hot dogs, cookouts, and a spiel about photo gypsum in Florida's road construction. Is Ron DeSantis intent on paving the roadways with death? You will find out. But first, TJ Raphael is out with another podcast that tells a story that is both on the news and is a pretty impressive tale that you never knew existed, cover-up. The Pill Plot is about the often daring ploys to legalize the abortion pill in the U.S. International gambits, unbelievable legal workarounds, including secret factories. It's all there and cover up The Pill Plot and it's all here up next.
0: You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: A new podcast called Cover Up The Pill Plot is about an extremely important and in the news, and to me, unknown series of events in American history. It is about the abortion pill, abortion in general, and some of the more fascinating figures who, to this day, are shaping our debate. T.J. Raphael is the producer and host of this series, and she is back on The Gist. Thanks for coming on, T.J. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So let's start, as much as it is antithetical to fun and interest, let's start, as background, with the pharmaceutical. Tell me are you 486 this is the abortion pill an abortion pill how's it differ from plan b is it an abortion is it an abortion facient this is this is the pill on the cover in the title and at the center of the story you're talking about so let's just define what it is pharmacologically
2: yeah, RU486 uh, is nowadays known as Mifepristone, which is the abortion pill. Essentially, it's an anti-progesterone that blocks the hormone that a pregnancy needs to sustain a fetus. And so that's what mifepristone, the abortion pill, is. And it's usually taken in combination with another drug called misoprostol. That drug makes the uterus cramp to then expel the fetus. But you take this kind of two-drug cocktail together, and mifepristone, once known as RU486, will stop the development of the fetus by blocking hormones. And then you take misoprostol to induce cramping, and essentially what it is, is you're inducing a miscarriage. So it is what we now consider medication abortion. It accounts for more than half of all procedures nationwide when it comes to abortion, not surgery. I think most people think most abortions are done with surgery, but they're actually done with this two-dose combination of pills. And And how mifepristone came to the United States um, is this decades lo- this decade-long battle that... I feel like kind of sounds like an Ocean's Eleven flick. And I'm surprised that I hadn't heard about it sooner, Um, even now with all of the with the Texas case in the news.
1: Well, I have some theories as to why and we'll get into them. But it's called Mifepristo now because that's the generic. And RU486 was the uh, a patent held by a French company. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it was held by Roussel Euclef, and that's what the RU in RU486 stands for. The numbers were just a way to catalog the drug. And Roussel Euclef was a French pharmaceutical company based in Paris, and their parent company was a German company called Hoechst AG. So while Roussel Euclef were the developers who held the patent, Hoechst uh, was the uh, company calling the shots. They're a huge multinational corporation. And back in the late 80s, and into the 1990s, Hooks didn't really want this abortion pill going worldwide. Uh, It had been available in France and in England as well. There was also a Chinese version. The Chinese government kind of ignored the French patent and made their own copy. But Hooks AG didn't want this pill going globally for a couple of reasons. You know, number one, the CEO of Hulkst AG, a man named Wolfgang Hilgar, was a devout Catholic and personally opposed to abortion. And also, they didn't want their name, their company name, to become synonymous with abortion. Abortion, unfortunately, is a controversial subject for a lot of people and for pharmaceutical companies who are risk averse by nature. They don't want that. Uh,
1: so, And to be clear, it wasn't even so much in Europe, as you're reporting And some of my further research shows, they were worried about the American market. They had other drugs they thought could make money. They had this allergy drug, and they were getting protested by, and, and worse, by U.S. anti-abortion groups, and they wanted their name off of it. But this was at a time when Europe itself, I mean, you have that quote from the French health minister hailing it. Do you remember the quote off the top of your head? Some miracle of, for womankind?
2: Yeah, the French health minister called the drug the moral property of women.
1: That's amazing. That's a great quote.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, the medical community really rallied around the drug as soon as it came out. But, yeah, the abortion, at least in the United States, is always a political issue. And and so that's one of the reasons it took so long to come here to the United States.
1: And it came out in what years? So it was
2: released on the market in France in 1988. It is not uh, brought to the United States until the year 2000. It finally gains FDA approval September 28th, 2000, about five days before the debate between Al Gore and George W. Bush. And then a couple weeks later, we all know what happened from there, there on out. Uh, but the pill gains uh, FDA approval September 2000. And it's actually, yeah, discussed in that first uh, debate between Gore and Bush.
1: Let's talk characters, and what a character! What a name, Larry Later. Tell (laughs) me about Larry Later.
2: So, Larry Later was an abortion rights activist. Betty Friedan called him the father of the abortion rights movement. Larry is this, you know wealthy Manhattanite. Uh, He doesn't really need to work. He went to Harvard. He also was a World War II veteran. And he gets involved in the abortion rights movement in the 1960s. And this is after writing a biography, the official biography of Margaret Sanger. Larry was a journalist. He was stringing for places like the New Yorker, Life Magazine. Uh, He thought, you know, to really make it as an author, I've got to write a book. So he realizes no one's ever written a book about Margaret Sanger. The founder of Planned Parenthood, who has sort of a a controversial legacy herself. Uh, Larry spends time with Sanger in a retirement home at the end of her life in Tucson, Arizona. And she really inspires him um, to to become an abortion rights activist. And Larry then goes on to write a book that is simply called Abortion. It's cited in the Roe versus Wade decision eight times. um, And he dedicates his entire life uh, to expanding access to abortion. And um, I think he pulls, you know, one of his riskiest stunts at the age of 72, when he, in 1992, finds a pregnant woman uh, who is down with breaking the law to try to bring RU486, now known as Mifepristone, into the United States in the face of a federal ban that was put in place by George H.W. Bush. And her name,
1: this daring, dashing heroine, is what? Her name is Leona
2: Benton. So at that time in 1992, she was 29 years old. She was a self-identified anarchist. She was a punk uh, from the Bay Area. And she was also an activist herself. She was a clinic defender in the San Francisco area, uh, protecting people, trying to access abortion services, other reproductive health care in the face of, you know, Anti abortion protesters. And she finds herself six weeks pregnant. She goes to a clinic where she has some personal friends, and they approach her and say, hey, want to challenge the federal government, Uh, fly to London, take on the Supreme Court? What do you think? And she says yes. And within 24 hours of saying yes to this, she boards a plane from San Francisco to New York, spends a night in New York, and then boards a flight from New York to London to get the pills and then intentionally be caught by customs back in New York at JFK Airport
1: the next day. (laughs) This is one of the Ocean's Eleven type escapades. This is the scene that starts the series. You deal with it in episode one. It's not the only action set piece in this this series because Larry, oh, I don't want to give it all away, but you know, the pill that he intentionally gets busted with or uses Leona to get busted with, not the only pill that he spirited away. There's another foray into trying to patent the pill themselves, sort of reverse engineer it from this actual uh, French pill. What's the theory behind that? Yeah. So Larry's kind of incredible plan
2: was to challenge Roussel Euclef's patent on the drug. Uh, And he after doing this stuff with Benton, yeah, he had secretly kept an extra dose of RU486 of mifepristone. He found this obscure loophole in, in New York law that said all of the ingredients are purchased within the state of New York. And there's this medication that doesn't have FDA approval. It can get approval for use in New York state. Larry called it an, the mini New York FDA law. And so Larry's idea was to manufacture an exact replica. Of RU486, and he's able to do this with the hidden dose that he had from the Leona Benton stunt. Plus, he had secured a Chinese copy of the pill as well. And he hires a, um, a chemist from Columbia University. Uh, he builds a secret lab in a warehouse. I'm actually the first journalist to identify the location of this warehouse. Uh, it's in the Maranek, New York. It was sandwiched between a plastics plant and a vintage car mechanic. And He basically outfits this warehouse to be a working chemistry lab. He's raising $50,000 here and there in order to get the equipment. And then he hires a master chemist and gives him the pseudonym Dr. X. I was able to verify Dr. X's identity, but he said under no circumstances did he want his identity revealed as he is still concerned with anti-abortion attacks. Um, Dr. X is able to synthesize the pill. Larry holds a press conference to announce this. And the the move is basically to, number one, pressure the French company and the German company that have the patent to RU486, to Mifepristone to say, if you don't try to bring this to the U.S., we're going to do something about it. Look at us. We've got this replica. And also to keep the issue in the news. Larry was, you know, trained as a journalist. He really wanted Americans to have knowledge of this pill, to say, you know, the Bush administration is denying American women this innovative new pill. Uh, And also to keep, once Bill Clinton comes into office, to keep the pressure on Clinton, who on his first week on the job, Bill Clinton announced that he would direct the FDA to review this ban on RU486 that his predecessor had Put in place, Uh, and Larry's an impatient guy. He's like, "Well, Bill, what are you gonna do about it?" Uh, But again, this is still 1993. Again, the drug is not approved until 2000.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Now, Doctor X isn't giving you his name. People, you you talk to some pretty brave people on the side of trying to get uh, women abortion access, but you also talk at length with one of the most notorious anti-abortion activists. In the United States and in U.S. history, I found what he said very interesting. I also have questions about how you approach that. So tell me about him, Randall Terry.
2: Yeah, so Randall Terry is a lifelong anti abortion activist. He started the group Operation Rescue in the late 1980s. And Operation Rescue, Took a different kind of approach. Instead of just, you know, sitting outside of clinics with signs and, and, you know, shouting at people, they decided they wanted to physically blockade clinics to put their bodies, uh, in between people trying to access the clinic and the door to the clinic. And, uh, in the early nineties and, and into the mid nineties, they got tens of thousands of followers to follow them into places like Wichita, Kansas. And they would, uh, you know, disrupt business there for, Weeks at a time. And yeah, Randall, his goal is to criminalize all abortion, uh, to shut down every clinic in the United States, um, and to prosecute anyone who helps any person try to get an abortion. Um, so he is, you know, he thinks the National Right to Life Committee is too soft. Uh, so he is, uh, way, uh, to the r- on the right of the spectrum when it comes to, um, cracking down on abortion access.
1: You tell the story of attempted murders, actual murders, assassinations of uh, abortion doctors. How much was Randall Terry, he claims not, but how much was Randall Terry involved in that?
2: Yeah, so Randall, um, you know, I spoke with a professor at Tulane University, uh, Carissa Haugeberg, um, and she studied the anti-abortion movement, and, and and she said something to to me, and and we included in the show that like rare, rarely do you see the Randall Terry's of the world at the scene where a bomb goes off or at the scene of a murder. Well, let me just say, Randall's rhetoric is violent. Um, he calls doctors Nazis. He sits, says, says that they've unleashed a Holocaust. He calls them mass murderers. Um, and he says, if you believe abortion is murder, act like it's murder. And the logical response to murder is you physically intervene on behalf of the victims.
1: So Randall Terry says this, and I guess you could say it's at least intellectually consistent. If abortion is murder, you are going to kind of throw your body in the way of murderers. You're going to not create arguments that you know, pretend it's about the health of a woman. It's just about stopping murder. Uh, Another example that showed up recently is Donald Trump, who wasn't so conversant in what you're supposed to say when asked, should we punish women who get abortions? And he's probably new to the anti-abortion stance said, oh, I guess so. And that was anathema to the mainstream, if you will, abortion movements. But of course, Randall Terry would want to punish a murderer as he sees it.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is his goal, I, I, in my conversation with him, he has mapped out exactly what this would look like. Um, you know, he says, oh, let's make it, you know, a $50 fine to start with. Uh, you're, you know, you'll get a mugshot, your picture will be in the paper, everyone will know that you've had an abortion or you've helped somebody get an abortion. Um, and then if there is a second offense, then it gets more serious thereafter. But he, believes there has to be some form of uh, punishment. Um, seems to me public humiliation is is part of this uh, f- from his plan um, in order to fully stop abortion that everybody will know. Um, and yeah, like maybe it's 50 bucks the first time, maybe the fine goes up thereafter. Uh, but Randall is, is fully dedicated to this. And He really um, chastises others in the anti-abortion movement who have said there should not be punishment for people who have abortions. He just, you know, thinks that that is completely um, not the way to do it if you really want to stop all abortion in the United States.
1: And I don't have to ask if Randall Terry had a great impact on the lives of women and the choices they have because your show documents that he did The organized protests that were eventually legislated against still had a huge impact. He probably was the inspiration for at least some acts of violence, maybe even uh, some murders. And just things like getting states to pass laws about the width of a hallway would put abortion clinics under huge financial pressure, being able to give less and less care to women. So the question is, is Randall Terry winning now?
2: You know, I think potentially in the political arena, he, I mean, this is a tricky question, Mike, (laughs) is he winning? I mean, he, you know, was really leading the charge to get uh, very conservative judges elected, uh, to get very conservative lawmakers elected. You know, he even said, you know, we were part of establishing that litmus test for Republicans as it related to like, you cannot win a primary if you are not pro-life. So in that sense, I mean, if we look at uh, the court who just overturned Roe, I mean, I I think that would, you know, not single-handedly for Randall, but in, in some sense, yeah, that is a victory for him. I mean, that is him, you know, winning in that sense. However, we have never lived in a world where abortion does not exist in one form or another. Um, that has been true for all of human history. Um, so, at, at, you know, at the end of episode seven and in our final episode, I kind of hint at that, that, you know, people will, try to do things to get abortion, Um, whether it's, you know, in Oklahoma, people are, you know, private pilots are volunteering to fly people out of state in order to get access. Um, There are caravans taking women and other people to other states in order to get access. And of course, the abortion pill exists along with the Internet. So I think that Randall has had some victories um, especially as it relates to the overturning of Roe. But I think it's just one chapter in a very long and ongoing story of the American abortion wars, and it's not over.
1: The name of the podcast is Cover Up the Pill Plot. It is available from Sony Podcasts. They have a feed called The Binge where you could uh, listen to Cover Up the Pill Plot. It was reported and hosted, and we've been speaking with T.J. Raphael. T.J., thank you.
2: Thanks, Mike.
1: A friend of mine forwarded along a headline from CBS News Florida bill allowing radioactive roads made of potentially cancer causing mining waste, signed by DeSantis. Seems fair, lol, he wrote. Now, you should know that my friend is not only a huge DeSantis fan, he's a giant investor in the gypsum industry. He's actually called the Gypsum King of Sandusky, Ohio. His license plate is CASO42H2O. Obviously, the chemical composition of gypsum. This causes this long extended license plate, which had to spend extra for, causes one in 300,000 passing motorists to give them the thumbs up because they must all work in coke smelters. Okay, none of that's true, including the headline. But how untrue is it? It would be kind of satisfying if Ron DeSantis, Ron Death Santis, was out there paving cancer highways, perhaps cackling as he did it. But you can't say that is happening if it's not And, you know, it would also be satisfying from a fact-checking perspective if the headline was 180 degrees opposite of the truth. But it's a complex topic that the headline plays fast and loose with, which one would hope isn't the standard applies to the actual use of phosphogypsum. So to start things off, here's how CBS reported the story on air.
0: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill which allows roads in the state to be made with radioactive mining waste. The measure adds phosphogypsum to the list of materials state officials say can be used to build roads. The EPA says the substance is potentially linked to cancer and describes it as radioactive.
1: So that, what you heard there, that is incorrect. The bill does not allow roads to be built using phosphogypsum. It is a preliminary measure to determine the feasibility of phosphogypsum as a paving material. Wait. Could it really be a paving material, or is it just cancer causing radioactivity? Well, let's find out. Phosphogypsum, let's get some. If you go investigating phosphogypsum, you come across a spate of articles from the last three years about the EPA under Trump, which tried to allow it as a building material, and also recently the state of Florida looking into doing just that. There are a billion tons of phosphogypsum, and they're currently piled in 25 gigantic stacks throughout the state of Florida. Florida leads the nation in guys in flip-flops and wraparound shades getting chased by alligators as they attempt to patronize topless drive-through donut shops, but also, less delightfully, in phosphorus and phosphoric acid. Phosphorus is a necessary fertilizer for plants and living things. Florida supplies much of it to the world. You might use it in your garden. All good, but actually some bad. Making phosphoric acid to use as fertilizer, a byproduct is created, phosphogypsum. In fact, five times as much byproduct results as product, which is why there are all these phosphogypsum piles across the state called gypsum stacks. How dangerous is phosphogypsum? I would not want to lick it. It does have trace elements of radon, which is a naturally occurring carcinogen, doesn't make it less carcinogenic. It's quite deadly in large amounts. So you would think, all right, we got to do everything we can to keep it out of the water supply, the air, everything, right? That's what TV station WESH Channel 2 Orlando was getting at when they reported. Governor Ron DeSantis is paving the way for some controversial research on roads involving radioactive material. I like the paving reference and it is more fair than cancer radioactive and saying it's already allowed as CBS did, but consider this. So many things have low levels of radiation. You do, bricks do transcontinental flight really exposed you to quite a bit, relatively speaking, quite a bit of radiation, there are lots of studies about treating phosphogypsum to make it safer, dare I even say safe. I've been reading many studies in journals that I did not know existed, but that I've signed up for. I'm now a member of the German Gypsum Association, or GIPS, maybe gyps, I don't know where they get the I, it's all in German. That is a trade group. Sure, I don't take everything they say on faith, but it's a fun little trade group. I get a newsletter from the American Association called, you ready? Gypsumation. It's all your gypsum news in one place. The gypsumation newsletter features gypsumptuous prose. It had me gyps somersaulting. And then there's the journal Waste and Biomass Valorization. There I found such researchers as Vislo Streck of the Institute of Low Temperature and Structural Research. And Kazimierz Grabas of Poltegor Institute of Open Cast Mining to Polish scholars. I read a few Chinese studies, not in Chinese, in English. And then there was this refinement of waste phosphogypsum from Pravo, Serbia, characterization and assessment of application in civil engineering, where they conclude recrystallized gypsum does not present a radiation hazard when used as a building material, while raw phosphogypsum meets the requirements only for road construction materials which is what they're talking about in Florida. This collection of scholarship from lands normally known for giving us contenders in strongman competitions doesn't settle all the questions, but it certainly suggests that cancer Ron is erecting highways to hell. Might be a little bit overblown. The use of phosphogypsum in road paving materials all over the world exists now. It's in India, it's in China, it's in Europe. The International Atomic Energy Agency says, "quote, All evidence suggests that the doses received as a result of the use of phosphogypsum in agriculture, road construction, marine application, and landfill were sufficiently low that no restrictions on such uses are necessary. My problem isn't so much the worth of phosphogypsum, phosphogypsum boon or bane. I'm still quite skeptical just based on those few studies I read to say, all right, let's start paving the roads left and right What I'm most concerned about is the nature of expressing all this and explaining all this to the public. I am not taking industry assurances on faith, but likewise, this framing, the second sentence of WESH's coverage, is vague. It allows the Florida Department of Transportation to study road construction using a material that many people say could increase people's risk for cancer. Many people. But who are the people? If they are top experts and scientists that's one thing but here's who wesh quotes so phosphogypsum is a byproduct of the fertilizer production process synthetic fertilizers are made with phosphate rock which
2: is dug up from under the ground here in florida elise bennett is an attorney with the center for biological diversity which advocated against the law
1: least Bennett is an environmental advocate in opposition to the use of phosphogypsin in roads. It doesn't mean she's wrong. It just means she's an advocate on one side of the issue. Is she a scientist? She is not. I looked up her history. She's a lawyer who studied environmental law and has worked professionally with the Center for Biodiversity, I think her entire career, including this stint from 2016 to 2020, as reptile and amphibian staff attorney at the Center for Biodiversity. Your Honor, of course my client acted in cold blood. He is a reptile. I don't begrudge her of her activism, any of her opinions. I don't even disbelieve her, nor do I disbelieve the CBS account, which quotes the same Elise Bennett. There are two other experts quoted. One is, like Elise Bennett, also a lawyer for the Center for Biological Diversity. And then there's Rachel Curran, a lawyer for the People for Protecting Peace River. The article, the CBS article by Lee Cohen, whose Twitter bio reads, journalists focusing on the climate crisis and social justice does not quote one scientist or even dedicate one sentence to telling the audience anything that I've told you about phosphogypsum's use in the rest of the world or the possibility of using it safely. The first sentence puts radioactive in scare quotes because of course it's scary, but I don't even understand that choice. It seems that phosphogypsum does emit trace amounts of radiation, the question is how much and can it be treated to produce less? You know what the Serbs say about that. But really, the headline, Florida bill allowing radioactive roads made of potentially cancer-causing mining waste signed by DeSantis, why not just let the activist opponents write this article? Come on, the words radioactive and cancer are each in their own way shorthand for catastrophe. When you put two words as charged as radioactive and cancer in a single headline, it's like the third rail of nuclear options. Of course, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been inspired to research this topic so thoroughly, to bring you the insight from Polish, Serb, and perhaps one or two ethnically Croat researchers. I wouldn't have signed up for my favorite new newsletter, gypsum stacks over substacks, my friends, And I wouldn't be able to delight you with this bright burning tale of phosphorus on the 4th of July holiday weekend, extended. As Ron DeSantis clearly implies, you are welcome, America. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the phosphogypsum coordinator of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oompru, Gpru, Dupru, and thanks for listening.